Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out my other podcast called The Quipster Film Review Podcast, where I cover brand new movies that are out in theaters. You can find that link at my website, Quipster.net is where to go. Today, I'm going to be getting into the first part of a three-part series looking at films from the 1980s in which there is a female queen or princess who is evil as the main antagonist. Today, I'm going to be getting into, from 1988, kind of continuing on from the Ewok films I've just done, another Lucasfilm production that features Warwick Davis. It's called Willow, and it's a movie that has kind of gained reputation over the years as younger people have viewed it and then grown up enjoying it. It is a PG-rated film. It does have violence, scary images, and mild sensuality. The runtime is two hours and six minutes. Warwick Davis is that main star. Val Kilmer, Joanne Wally, Gene Marsh, Billy Barty, Patricia Hayes, Mark Northover, Gavin O'Hurley, Kevin Pollock, Rick Overton, Pat Roach, David Steinberg, and Tony Cox are in the film. Ron Howard is the director. The screenplay credited to Bob Dolman. Now, George Lucas claims that he had this idea for this Tolkien-esque fantasy adventure called Willow back in 1972. Although it wasn't called Willow at that time, he thought it would be called Munchkins. He was researching myth-making elements and Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces for Star Wars. And he came up with this other idea he had for a movie, and he had determined that there had never been a blockbuster in the fantasy genre, despite many attempts. There were some recent entries in the 1980s that were costly failures, but he felt that the time was ripe because there were many advancements in the world of visual effects that could bring that fantasy to life, including using his own industrial light and magic team to lead the way. Now, the familiar story here combines elements from familiar tales, Tolkien's The Hobbit, Biblical influences abound, Disney's animated fairy tales, Greek mythology, and those olden Celtic yarns, plus The Wizard of Oz, as I mentioned, which has become the template to which Lucas has crafted nearly all of his fantasy adventure films, anywhere from Star Wars to Labyrinth, to both of his made-for-TV Ewok adventures that I just covered in the previous couple of episodes. Although this was set in a mythical land, Lucas claimed in the early phases of the story development that he was going to set the timeline for Willow around 2500 BC, but by the time that they went through the seven revisions in the script that they had made, this timeline had shifted much more toward the medieval period in Celtic times. Now, Lucas originally had envisioned being the director for Willow, but in the intervening years, he had grown weary of directing pictures for a whole variety of reasons after the first Star Wars. On the production side, Lucas ended up joining forces again with Alan Ladd Jr. He was the studio executive who once helped usher in Star Wars at 20th Century Fox, but since then, Ladd had moved on to MGM United Artists in 1985, and he quickly became its chairman, and he wanted the chance to not only work with Lucas again, but also with director Ron Howard, who he had produced a film before, 1982's Night Shift. Now, Ron Howard, he actually had gotten his first big break in the movies with George Lucas. He was the star of American Graffiti, and Lucas approached Howard back in 1985 while he was working on Cocoon, 
to take the helm of this other project that he had in mind. On the set of American Graffiti, Ron Howard was almost never without his 8mm camera. He shot whatever he found of interest on the set into his own camera, and he proclaimed to George Lucas that one day he would be a director. Of course, that came to fruition in the intervening years, and, and now he had his chance here to make a film with one of his mentors. Now, Lucas wanted to make this a story about pursuing one's compassion instead of just one's passions, and he brought in Howard because he wanted to give his story a character-based touch, and Howard had been known for providing a lot of humor and warmth and emotion into his films, and Lucas wanted more of a swashbuckling adventure, but also a story that will hit home his themes about commitments to family and love, being the predominant motivation for reaching beyond one's own comfort zone. Now, Howard signed on to Willow for $2.2 million, which is quite a bit. It included money given to his Imagine Films Entertainment. That was his company that he ran with partner Brian Glazer. He spent several months working with George Lucas and Bob Dolman almost every day. Bob Dolman was a first-time screenwriter, but he had worked with Howard on an unsold pilot to a proposed TV series, back in 1983 called Little Shots, and he also developed in that time teleplays for TV shows like WKRP in Cincinnati and SCTV, so known for bringing a lot of humor to his projects. Lucas had Dolman watch a bunch of non-fantasy films like Yojimbo and a lot of swashbucklers with Errol Flynn for examples of what he wanted from some of his characters like Mad Mardigan. He also gave him a reel of nothing but great battles in cinema for what should be included in the set pieces for Willow. Dolman also researched Celtic customs and Celtic culture to give the spirit of the Nelwyn clans in their day-to-day lives, while the production crew visited museums to try to gather ideas for Celtic wardrobe and sets, including bringing in noted French artist Jean Mobius Girard to do concept work. The screenwriter Dolman also brought in comic relief characters of the Brownies, and he convinced George Lucas to change the evil king that he had intended to a queen. He wanted to avoid easy Darth Vader comparisons by changing that character to a female, and he also wanted to put more women into the cast because Lucas was known for making primarily male-oriented cinema. Dolman's difficulty was writing a love story, though, in the middle of the action to try to play convincingly, but he ended up leafing through this copy of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, and he ended up coming up with this notion that he could actually fast-track this romance if he had his characters fall for each other through magic. Now, Ron Howard wanted to make his film a rugged fantasy. He claimed that Willow should play as if John Ford had directed The Wizard of Oz, and he had this notion that Willow would be released in the spring of 1988, which it would actually happen. It was intended to be released on May 25th of that year, the 11th anniversary of Star Wars, but it ended up getting pushed back just a little bit to avoid having to compete with Rambo 3 and Crocodile Dundee 2. Now, production would go relatively smoothly for Willow, although there was a pending strike by the Directors Guild of America, and that threatened to see Ron Howard unavailable to continue directing until a settlement, but Lucas ended up planning to step in as the director of Willow if need be, but he didn't want to. He had left the DGA after a bitter dispute that resulted in a $25,000 fine back in 1980. And that was because he had placed director Irvin Kirshner's name at the end of Empire Strikes Back instead of at the beginning. Even if the strike never came to pass, Lucas persistently did visit the set. He would show up and leave without any kind of announcement. Val Kilmer dubbed him Zorro. He was in and out before you noticed, and he would always leave his mark behind. 
Lucas found himself in the editing room as well, such that though Ron Howard is listed as the sole director in the credits, many feel that this film is undeniably a George Lucas vehicle. Ron Howard, when asked, said it was an R movie instead of a my movie, not entirely Lucas's, but it was his story idea that he had cultivated for 15 years, and he certainly was on the set enough that Howard didn't have anything close to autonomy in the decision-making, claiming that he spent more time conferencing over the story than in any other project he had ever done. And despite the demands, Howard and Lucas did end up working well together, and they planned to make another movie shortly after, one that would be much more of a contemporary comedy that Howard would cultivate. Didn't really come to pass, although he kind of worked on a Lucasfilm project later, even though Lucas was not part of the project when he did the Star Wars film called Solo. And now the story involves a man named Willow Ufgood. Willow is a farmer. He dreams of becoming a sorcerer's apprentice among the Nelwins, which are this race of little people. And one day, he ends up encountering a baby who is washed onto the riverbank near his farm. And the baby, who we come to learn is named Elora Dannon, is a daikini, which is what the Nelwins call the race of humans. They are much larger than the Nelwins. And Willow's brethren don't think it's a good idea to keep her around. The evil witch Queen Bavmorda has minions, including her warrior princess daughter named Sorsha, and a vicious skull-faced warrior general Keel, actively searching for this baby, smuggled out from under her nose because she may be the prophecy foretold to end her reign. She has this special mark upon her arm. And Willow ends up accepting the mission to return the baby back to the first daikini he meets, with a few other Nelwins in tow. Along the way, they encounter and recruit that first daikini that they see, Mad Mardigan, played by Val Kilmer. He's a skilled but down-on-his-luck mercenary. He agrees to take the baby in exchange for his release from capture. The daikinis are in the midst of a war with the legions on Bavmorda's side, and that puts Elora Dannon's fate in jeopardy should they fall short. However, Willow gets another directive from a fairy to find this good witch on a remote island. And with Mad Mardigan and a couple of brownies, who are these human-like races that are even smaller than the Nelwins, they're only nine inches in height, Willow seeks to find a way to protect the baby from Bavmorda. Now, most of the interiors for Willow were shot in Elstree Studios in London. There were exteriors shot in England and in New Zealand, so it was all over the map here. Some work was also done on Lucas's home turf in Marin County, including the Muir Woods, San Pablo Bay, and Skywalker Ranch. Scenic cinematography here by Adrian Biddle is a highlight in this land of regal castles and lush forests and lofty mountain backdrops and visually this is as gorgeous a fairy tale as there has been on the screen up to that point and as with all of his productions lucas receives wonderful work from his visual effects company industrial light and magic although some of the effects were a lot costlier than they had anticipated especially this morphing the morphing moments involving the magical turning of one creature into another into another into another ilm had invented the morphing technique for this this movie, they ended up failing to get that process patented so that they could sell that technique to others who might want to use it in their films, and they kind of lost millions potentially there. The story ends up going off the rails in its climax. Maybe that might be a step too far for some viewers. It's really wacky, and that's kind of part of the film's charm for some viewers. It combines really stunning visuals with James Horner's rousing score, and I think Willow compels as a sight and sounds experience, even when the story tends to get formulaic. Three foot, four inch tall Warwick Davis, he gets his first starring role at only 17 years old. During the making of Return of the Jedi, Lucas had ideas of making Davis the star of this long gestating idea. 
Ron Howard initially was skeptical about Davis. He thought that he was too young at 17 to play a married father of two. Lucas fought hard, but he ended up leaving the decision to Howard on who better could be cast as Willow if he could find somebody, which put Davis in competition with hundreds of others auditioning for that part. The auditions were long, and they were arduous, but Howard felt that this was a good test to see if Warwick Davis was ready for the long days and nights of the eventual shoot. And once Val Kilmer auditioned opposite Davis, he realized that the chemistry was evident there, and he knew that he had his Willow and Mad Mardigan right then and there. And from there, Warwick Davis would undergo a lot of training, horse riding. He had a phobia of horses, fencing, magic tricks, and a lot of baby handling training to make sure that he fit this part to a T. Davis developed an American accent for Willow because Ron Howard felt that American audiences would have difficulty understanding his English dialect, even though the cast was mostly British anyway. Howard had Davis study the films of Jimmy Stewart in particular because he wanted Davis to embody the same calm but very steady everyman persona. Kilmer, who beat out the likes of other actors like John Cusack and Matt Frewer, who happened to be Max Headroom at the time. Kilmer is very fun to watch. He applies this juggling style to his sword fighting that makes it very unique. And Despite a game and comical performance, Mad Mardigan, I think he falls a bit short as far as being a compelling, reluctant hero. He kind of fails to take hold in the manner of others of this mold, like Han Solo or Indiana Jones. But Kilmer still manages to get his due here. He became interested while he was making this film in pursuing the actress playing Sorsha, Joanne Wally. They became romantically involved during the shoot, and she initially opposed seeing her co-star on the side, but she eventually found him hard to resist. Their offset romance caused some scenes to be reshot to capitalize on their newfound chemistry, and they eventually became married about three months before the release of the film. The roles of the 90-inch high brownies, they went to comedians Kevin Pollack and Rick Overton. They were shot after principal filming had completed, and they were inserted using the tech wizardry of ILM. Jean Marsh returns to a similar role to the one that she did for Return to Oz as the main heavy. Lucas actually had a hand in helping to get Return to Oz made behind the scenes, and he really liked Jean Marsh's portrayal there, so he used it here. And after the largest casting call for little people for any film in history up to that point, about 240 of them would end up participating in Willow as actors and stunt personnel and extras. There's an irony here. Willow lacks many of the humanistic touches that George Lucas had sought Ron Howard to deliver. Lucas emphasized them conceptually, but once production was underway, he ended up obsessing more with the visual components, and this really became the kind of visual effects film that he swore it would never be, and he ended up jettisoning a lot of the backstory to the characters that he had intended in favor of extending the action and battle sequences. The backstory that was put in the original script does remain if you read the novelization and also Marvel's comic book adaptation. There is much more fleshing out of these characters before they get to their battles. I would say there are probably more emotions and humanity to be found in, say, an Indiana Jones film, which Willow does tend to emulate in its action sequences, even though Willow tries more deliberately to pluck at our heartstrings. Now, I would say the only genuine emotional connection that does occur happens between Willow and his wife, Kaya. Kaya is played by Julie Peters. Peters had no prior acting experience at all before taking the Kaya role. 
working as an audio typist in her day job, and she still continued doing that even after Willow. Elora Dannon, the baby, is played by twin sisters Ruth and Jane Greenfield on the screen. The twins went through many hours of filming to try to ensure that the crew would have a whole host of emotional reaction shots that they could use throughout the story, depending on the situation. In addition to the Greenfields, who were brought in near the end of the shoot for close-ups, nearly 20 other infants were borrowed from a local hospital, with permission from their parents, of course, and they were used during the shoot at one time or another, including a 13-pound motorized stand-in that Davis carried around because the age of Laura Dannon was to be only three months old, but it took many more months than that, six months to a year, for the film to be completely shot. Lucas and company, they did have a bit of fun with some notable film critics at the time. Some of the bad guys are named after these film critics. General Keel is a knock on the prominent critic for New Yorker magazine, Pauline Keel. While, according to the press kits and the novelization, the ugly two-headed beast that's in this film is called an Ebor Sisk. Ron Howard jokes that the heads were modeled after his brother Clint. The Ebor Sisk is clearly poking fun at the two-headed duo of film critics known as Siskel and Ebert. It was originally going to be called a Siskbert, but that might have made it a little too obvious. The name of the fairy maiden of the forest, Sherlandrea, came from combining the names of the wives of Ron Howard and Bob Dolman, Cheryl and Andrea, respectively, and Linda Ronstadt was put there in the middle. That was Lucas's girlfriend at the time. Willow, when it finally came out, it debuted atop the U.S. box office in its initial week of release, but it ended up failing to catch the kind of fire that they were hoping to achieve in the end, despite a $20 million marketing campaign launched. Total box office returns were $56 million in the United States and another $54 million internationally, bringing the total to $110 million on a budget estimated to be close to $40 million, much of which came from Lucas and MGM. Over 30 companies joined on board prior to the release of the film to offer product tie-ins to Willow. There were action figures, cereals, lunchboxes, bedsheets, coloring books, jigsaw puzzles, board games, children's meals, even random things like underwear and camping equipment were all all made for Willow because they thought this was going to be a big blockbuster. Although technically this was profitable, the returns were not deemed enough to continue with Lucas's intended film trilogy. He wanted to make a couple of more movies after this. Nevertheless, the saga of Willow Upgood and Laura Dannon did continue in the following years later with a trilogy of books afterward entitled Chronicles of the Shadow War, which featured stories detailed by George Lucas and they were fleshed out with words by Chris Claremont, who happened to be the writer who popularized the X-Men comic books in the 1980s. Willow was intended to serve as a life preserver project for both Lucasfilm and MGM, who were both struggling at the time. They were suffering a string of box office failures leading into 1988. Lucas, in particular, felt that the company's reputation had tarnished after suffering back-to-back losses with the disappointing box office of Labyrinth and the mega-turkey that was Howard the Duck. Unfortunately, this attempt at a tentpole release barely covered its expenses, while tie-in products ended up languishing on store shelves. After the reviews and the box office returns were not up to expectations, Lucas ended up defending himself in the media from criticism. You know, they were writing about him saying he was regurgitating worn concepts and they thought he was throwing money at special effects to, to try to cover over that regurgitation. Lucas ended up defying any critics to come up with a way to make a film of the quality of Willow at less than the cost that he put into it. 
It has been said that part of the reason for the negative marks by some critics is due to the preconceived notion that Willow would be a much larger hit for all ages. Had they known that this was destined to struggle to find an audience, they might have been a little bit more charitable in channeling expectations for more specific demographics that might have found some enjoyment in it, namely children and those who enjoy the fantasy genre, and that's who ultimately came out to champion the film. Ron Howard stated a couple of months after the film's release, he was confused toward the critical assessment of Willow, given that audience reaction was actually stronger for this movie than his last two films that critics ended up loving, Splash and Cocoon. Both Howard and Lucas ended up writing off the critical response as having unrealistic expectations due to past successes. A good but not great film is considered to be a disappointment by critics if it happens to be a lesser film than anything you've done in the past, and that certainly did hold true for Lucas and Howard. Now, despite its problems, it ended up getting nominated for two Academy Awards for its visual effects and its sound effects editing. It lost both of those awards to the technical marvel that was Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which happened to have visual effects done by Lucas's own Industrial Light and Magic group. Willow ended up suffering due to the reputation of George Lucas at the time. After having his hand on revolutionizing Hollywood for the prior decade, he ended up struggling to stand out amid other productions that followed in the wake of Star Wars and Indiana Jones, and that leaves Willow feeling like just another attempt to deliver the same thrills all over again. Its reputation has been helped by the lower expectations that lackluster reviews and middling box office do provide, and it has actually become a cult favorite among many who think it's better than what many have said in the past. But after the likes of Excalibur and Legend and Conan the Barbarian and Dragon Slayer and about a, another dozen or so notable entries in the fantasy genre of the 1980s, it was hard to revolutionize a genre that never quite took hold into the mainstream and was already becoming passe by 1988. And looking back, though, it is a better film than many of its predecessors, so hindsight has been kinder for those who love this genre. It does hit enough of the right marks at the right times to merit a recommendation, even if so many other properties in book and film form have hit those same marks many times before. As with many imaginative films of the 1980s that failed, it eventually did find its audience that truly does love it. And its reputation has gradually shifted enough for generations who grew up watching it on home media to consider Willow among the better fantasy entries that the decade of the 1980s has to offer. So for all of that, I'm going to actually give it a mild recommendation. Three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale that I do recommend it for people who like this kind of movie. If you're a kid and if you're a lover of the fantasy genre, certainly this is kind of a precursor to the Lord of the Rings films before the special effects really could be rendered in a much more realistic fashion with that. But, you know, that's not surprising given that there are many aspects of Lord of the Rings in Willow. So if you like the Lord of the Rings films, I would actually put this up there. Some people might even consider this a better version of The Hobbit than Peter Jackson's attempt at a trilogy making The Hobbit. So I do recommend it. If this sounds of appeal to you, you probably will get a kick out of Willow. Enough to give it at least three stars, maybe more if you happen to be so inclined to like this kind of movie. In recent news, as of this recording in March of 2020, there is a sequel series that is planned and in development for the Disney Plus streaming service with Ron Howard doing some production and his screenwriter for the Star Wars film Solo, Jonathan Kasdan, scripting, and that will promise to return Warwick Davis into the Willow role, although the series might focus more on a grown-up Laura Dannon. So something to look forward to if you're a fan of Willow coming down the pipe, hopefully 
fingers crossed on that. So anyway, if you have your own thoughts on Willow and you want to impart them to me, you can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. You can email me. You can find my Twitter feed, Facebook page, my Instagram. All of those are adequate ways to get in touch with me. As far as what I'm going to be covering next week, well, it's kind of in keeping with that. I actually mentioned it during the course of this review. It's another film that Lucas had his hand in, even though it's not a Lucasfilm film. And it does feature Jean Marsh in the role of the main heavy. I think she's playing a princess, an evil princess in that film. The kind of dark and twisted, the one that gave a lot of children nightmares. I'm not even sure if I'm going to let my daughter watch this, although she does like some dark and twisted stuff too. It is from 1985, and it is called Return to Oz. And that will be the film I'm covering on next episode, Return to Oz, for next week. Thanks, everyone, for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. (laughs) 